I, I think ultimately acquisition is a long game and advisors told us that early on. They were like, plant a bunch of seeds and you'll be shocked how many people call you a year from now because circumstances have changed. It's understanding sort of what are their priorities? Can you meet those priorities? And if so, sort of how do you build the trust around that as you move forward? There's an entire generation of Americans who no longer care about prestige, titles, work travel, fancy offices, and lunches. Welcome to Mundane Millionaires, a podcast for this generation of small business owners who want to set their ego aside and focus on what matters, family, community, quality of life, and cash flows. In each episode, Eric Pasifici and Kevin Henderson uncover what it takes to get a little money in the bank, control your time, and invest in building great families and lives. Let's get started. Kevin, welcome back to Monday Millionaires. Good to see you. You've got the best cold open voice, Eric. Have I ever Thank told you. you that? Just the the energy and enthusiasm to be back on one more episode. It just it's dripping from your voice. Well, I know I am. I'm fired up, man. I love small business. I love business buying. I'm obsessed with this. You know this. I talk about this 22 hours a day. I drive everybody in my life crazy talking about business buying, and it's literally all I do. And in my free time, I take calls from prospective buyers and searchers, and I'm obsessed with it. So I love it. In line with that obsession, we have today Taylor Wallace, somebody who did the holy grail of ETA, in my opinion. And he did it, in his own words, as a kind of a happy accident or an accidental yep. searcher. And I'll give you the quick rundown on Taylor for the audience's benefit. He is a tech guy at heart, started his career in tech, lived all over the world, did a number of things in business, ended up with addiction that he talks about openly was able to overcome that addiction very triumphantly. And as a result that he got to know his now partner, Mike, through their sobriety and through a kind of sequence of events that he touches on a little bit at the beginning of the podcast, he ended up in Florida around the time of COVID. They started searching for a business to buy, bought in the, the, the doggy daycare space or the, the dog hospitality space, pet hospitality space. And then over the course of three years, this was an end of 2020, over the course of three years, was able to acquire a number of um, complementary businesses, start a few complementary businesses, and then ultimately exit the whole thing to a strategic partner that they're now working with to grow an even bigger brand. So, you know, all things considered as successful of a ETA yep. and entrepreneurship through acquisition story as I think I've ever heard. And he's the perfect guy for it too, because he's He's salt of the earth. He's a great guy. He's very smart. He's very interesting. He's not uh, a day-to-day, -day, you know, inside the facility operator. That's where his yep. partner comes in. So he talks a lot about kind of the, the importance of that partnership to the success of the venture. But I was blown away by Taylor, as I always am every time I, I, I talk with him. What was, your, what was your takeaway here, Kev? Yeah, super impressive guy. I think the, the thing that has, it continues to sit with me after we wrapped up this conversation is this idea not of exiting the business, but of partnering on my business, right? And, yeah. and a lot of times I think we, we think of chasing that holy grail of like ex exiting to private equity. They could pay private equity multiples and, you know, and, you know, I can have a great return on what I've built. Uh, but the way he thinks about it and the way he looks at that transaction as 
a continuing partnership. He's still very much involved in the business. The fund and platform is very much relying on Taylor and his partner to continue to drive growth. It's it it's kind of changing real time the way I I look at mm-hmm. exiting right and thinking yep. about exiting uh, that I think is a great framework for a lot of searchers to keep in mind that the quote unquote exit isn't necessarily a true exit. It is for some, but it doesn't have to be. It it can be the next phase of of growth in a business that you're continuing to build and continuing to love in the way that you could tell Taylor and his partner really love the pet hospitality space. Yeah. And we hear this concept from time to time, like, you know, the, the zero to one entrepreneur gets to a place Mm -hmm. in the business where they say, I've gone as far as I can go. I've taken this as far as I could go. And to your point, you know, finding that exit that isn't, you know, and I'm selling you the whole thing and I'm sailing away, but I'm actually now partnering with somebody who can get us to the next level through resources and expertise, I think is, is, a, is a really smart thing. But it takes the ability that some of us have and some of us do not to any, any address at the beginning to say, I'm not the guy. You know, I'm not the person well, and, who's going to take this. And the great thing about his story that we'll get into only for a brief moment in the episode is that his story includes both sides of that because his partnering with the platform was his own realization of like, we've taken it as far as we can. It's time to partner with someone to go to that next level. But their very first acquisition, you know, Taylor and his partner, their very first acquisition was the product of the same thing. It was a husband and wife team, very part-time for the husband. He had his own projects going on and they realized that they had stumbled on something great, that this could become a real business. And he just didn't have the the bandwidth and ability to run it and grow it to do it justice. And that's how Taylor and his partner even got pause and recs and and pause and rec in the first first case. So it's, you know, it's a theme we hear coming up over and over again, not just in his story, but in entrepreneurship through acquisition general. Yeah. Yeah. I think Taylor has a pretty cool story. He's a pretty cool guy. And so let's punt to Taylor Wallace of pause and Rex. Taylor, welcome to the pod, man. We um excited to have you on. You described yourself as kind of an accidental searcher. So you in 2020 bought a business called Pause and Rex that you recently exited from. Tell us about the search process and how you kind of accidentally fell into entrepreneurship through acquisition. Sure. Yeah. So it's really good to be here, guys. I was a tech guy. I started my first software company about a year out of college and did the tech thing for over a decade, ran that software company for about five years, and then was kind of a gunslinging tech consultant for whoever wanted to pay me the most money to talk about their crazy tech ideas for, for about five years. Jumped around the world, lived in Europe and California and Miami, and, and got to work on some really interesting technologies, everything from crypto to machine brain interfaces and augmented reality, uh, and, and really enjoyed that work. And while I was running my first startup, my, my roommate and I were both getting sober from drugs and alcohol abuse. And we, we became friends. He took a dog job at a doggy daycare scoop and poop and <laughs> was just kind of trying to rebuild his life. And we became roommates and, and he's running this doggy daycare. He quickly gets promoted to the general manager and I'm running the software startup and we're trying to figure out how to, how to live as better men and, and run these businesses. And we're coming home every night, swapping notes. And it quickly became apparent that he was doing a ton of work and his owner was making all the money. So we kind of developed this dream together that like, Hey, someday, like let's, let's do a doggy daycare together. You know how to run it. I know how to build a company. So let's, let's do that. But 
I ended up leaving Tampa and kind of going off on my tech adventures for, for a couple of years. And I landed in Miami in February of 2020 and was really burnt out on travel and kind of jumping jobs and decided I'm going to sign a lease, buy a bed and, and kind of stay in Miami for a bit. And then COVID happened and I got laid off in a month into lockdown. And I'm living in this like beautiful apartment in Miami with no friends and no high high paying tech job. Not the it worst was, place to be stranded though, if we're being honest. I mean, of all the places, it could have been Cleveland, Ohio. So at least you had that going. It's true. The, what was weird though is Miami was really no shut down during COVID. And I was coming back to Tampa and Tampa was pretty open in those first few months. So I ended up breaking my lease and coming back here to just kind of regroup. And my buddy and I started talking again and, and, and we're like, hey, you know, maybe he was really burnt out. I was burnt out on what I was doing. It was like, maybe now's the time to kind of explore this. So we, we decided we're going to do a doggy daycare and, and he was in a franchise system. So that was where we naturally started was thinking about buying out his owner or doing a new unit in his system. And we looked at some of the other franchises and, and we sort of landed on like he had the ops experience. I had the business experience. We didn't really need the franchise or so we were going to roll our own and we stumbled upon an independent for sale and decided to buy that. And that was the beginning of our, our, our journey together. And yeah, had no idea what search was, had no idea what, I didn't even know you could buy a small business. It was just like, I, I guess you can do that. And, and we did it. Yeah. I was going to say, so bridge that gap. If you didn't even think buying a business was a thing, how did you stumble across this first one to buy? We kind of snaked it from one of the franchises. They were trying to convince us to sign a franchise agreement because they had an independent that they were trying to buy and convert locally. And, and they basically were like, hey, if you sign a franchise agreement and you pay us 50 Gs, we'll let you see this facility that you might want to buy. And we were like, well, we'll sign an agreement that we won't buy it if we see it, but I'm not going to become a franchisee to potentially buy this, this unit I haven't seen yet. So they, they were being very difficult. So we just figured, hey, there's only a few doggy daycares in Tampa. Let's just call them all and see which one's for sale. And that's what we did. And we ended up buying it. I love that. No, that's a great. So what did the phone calls look like? Because obviously you can't just call the front desk and say, hey, are you for sale without upsetting, you know, I think upsetting that, a variety of people. I think that was just an email that was like, hey, you know, here's who we are. We've, we've been in the space and we're interested in, in potentially buying a doggy daycare. Would you ever consider selling? knowing that they were likely the the ones that the franchise was talking about. And they're like, oh, actually, yeah, all our financials are already prepared and we have a broker and we're ready to go. <laughs> like, oh, oh wow, amazing. Yeah, yeah. I'm shocked. We've reached out to a lot of other daycares and yeah, it's always a fine balance of, you know, how do you, how do you approach? And we mostly just try to get the owners on the phone if we can. Yeah. Where was your, your roommate and friend and, you know, now at this point in the story partner where was he was he in tampa or was he somewhere else he was he was running the largest doggy daycare in tampa at the time okay gotcha and tampa's home for you i assume is that why you're referring to back to tampa well it's it's sort of home like i grew up outside philadelphia and my family's kind of slowly migrated here so i i i lived in europe for a couple years and then i was in new york city right after college but then moved here to build my first company and and it's become home so that was February. You were laid off roughly April, 2020. Bridge that time gap. So how you, you had this idea, you know, you started calling around, you were talking to franchisors. When was it that you actually closed? We closed, I think it was October 1, 2020. Got it. Okay. So pretty quick. Ten, wow. Yeah. Very quick. Um, yeah. We, from, and, we and, probably talked to that business, I think late August, 2020, and we closed by October. Wow. Wow. Right, right in the heart of the pandemic. And, and if I recall, that was actually 
Was it good for the dog business or was it? It depended on where you were. Florida was was interesting because we had we opened up very quickly here. So most of the facilities were kind of rebounding by that point. And I think the business we acquired was had just kind of gotten back to pre-COVID revenue numbers. But every business we looked at for kind of the next year and a half, you know, they had this big drop off and most of them got back or exceeded their pre-COVID revenue numbers because everybody got puppies during COVID. Um, yeah, we got and the, crazy and the dog, dog industry as a whole went population. nuts. Yeah. 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 But so, so the first deal was off market. Tell us about that. So you reach out to the seller, no broker involved, you know, it's, it's gutsy to do an off market deal generally, but to do it as your first acquisition, you know, can be really tough without a, a broker there to bridge the gap or was there a broker? They had, he wasn't really a broker. He was, he was kind of their longstanding CPA who had done deals before. So they had, they had kind of all their financials and everything pulled together. And, but yeah, I mean, knowing what we know now, it, it definitely would have taken us more than a month to do diligence. You know, we didn't do a lot of diligence. You know, I was ticking and tying and of course we're doing Q of E and like, I'm, I'm a C player in a spreadsheet. So it our the joke I tell people is like our first financial model, I was terrified around it because I just didn't know any better. And I had never really done a financial model before. And, and in hindsight, it was a horrible model because we doubled our projections in six months. So it was a, ho- it was a horrible in all the right ways. Yes. Yep. You know, financial projections yeah. are a funny thing, right? They are. And I get what you mean about how disconcerting that can be. Like, I'm sure it resonates with a lot of first time searchers listening to this of like, you know, even if you've done modeling, like for a private equity fund in a prior life or something like it's just, it's just fundamentally different. I mean, it's, it's fundamentally not different, but it, but it's different in the margins and the stakes and, you know, the personal emotion of like, I'm buying my first business gets caught up in it. And there's always that worry in the back of your head. Of like, what am I missing? You know, this, this looks great on paper. What am I missing? You know? Yeah. I think well, some it, of the advice I got is like the model's a guide. Right. And it, it should help you make your decision, but it's ultimately, it's just another data point or set of yeah. data hey, points. Hey guys, I have to pause for somebody. Somebody's knocking on my door. Hold on just a second. I'm so sorry. So for the benefit of listeners and those watching, Eric had to interrupt the recording for a minute for a knock at the door. And what, what just arrived, Eric? Two giant cases of, of New York style pizza from John of Bleecker Street. I don't yet know who it's from. I guess I'll do an unboxing video. But super exciting, man. It's go. a Friday too. I'm I feel great. It's good to see good to see you both. I'm happy for you. I expect no dominoes photos tonight. None That's of that right. blasphemy. There may be some dominoes photos. <laughs> don't do it. Don't wanna, don't wanna break your heart, Taylor. There's a really good Detroit style place here in town that I'm trying to get over to, but we'll see if I have time to to make it. I'm riding the Lions. When you guys listen to this, we'll know if the Lions won or lost, but Oh, nice. Well, well, if it's, you know, if it's not apparent now, this episode is not sponsored by Dominoes. So. Definitely not. Don't take their money. With that. Uh, if they want to <laughs> give it to me, I won't, I won't say no. Taylor. So Fair. anyways, everything's for sale, to... Taylor. Everything's for sale. Yeah. Let's keep talking about doggy daycare acquisitions. Cause I, it's a really popular space, Taylor. And I, you know, I don't know if it was in 2020, but I've gotten, you know, an unbelievable amount of calls of people trying to acquire doggy daycares and actually have a another client here in town who, who bought one around the same time as you did and has his brother running it. it's going fantastic it's really I, we actually business. looked at that deal and i kicked myself for not not buying that one i oh, we, we came very close to pulling the trigger and we reached back out right before close i didn't realize you guys did that deal because we wanted we, to, we sort of got our 
shit together and and wanted to buy it again and then it it had already closed with with that guy yeah he's an he's an amazing entrepreneur here in town we actually did not do his deal we did a subsequent deal for him a much larger transaction he's a phenomenal guy and there's a lot of really good entrepreneurs and business buyers in florida i'm sure many places but uh so for someone interested in the space, Taylor, like how do you how do you analyze market demand? Because I think about like I I actually don't hear much about doggy daycare out where I'm at in Texas, but when we've tried to you know when we've been traveling or something and tried to get a spot for our dog, I mean we've we've driven you know 45 minutes to a, a place that has availability you know within a few weeks of of planning a trip. Like it feels like. In a place like DFW, it's nowhere near saturated, but maybe that's just because we look when we're traveling around holidays or something. If someone's out there and they're hearing this and they're like, yeah, doggy daycare, that's awesome. How do they start going about thinking and analyzing, like, what's the demand like in my area to try and get into this line of business and grow and actually have the demand to meet? Yeah, I I think generally across the industry, there's there's a feeling, and I think it's accurate that there's way more demand than there is capacity in in pretty much every major market. It's it's a relatively new business, right? Doggy daycare yep. really wasn't a thing 15, 20 years ago, and it's they're not like pizza shops where you can just kind of pop them up in a couple of months. Like they're to build a, a serious pet resort is is a you know two year project, and it's pretty capital intensive, and and I think you're also seeing on the consolidation side of the house that any pet resort that's kind of north of a million in EBITDA is going to trade for a pretty premium multiple and is probably not going to be attainable for a searcher. And the, those pet resort owners know that and they're talking to consolidators like like the one we're a part of now. So if, if you're a search entrepreneur and you're really interested in the in the pet space, your your only real option is probably going to be a smaller facility, kind of like the one we bought that you know is, is a couple hundred K in, in EBITDA and, and trying to kind of grow something from there. But to answer your question directly, I mean, the, the, the calculus we generally do is you can assume 50% of Americans have dogs. That's, that's about the stat. There's more dogs in the United States now than there are children under the age of 18. So then it becomes about sort of what's the demographics of the dog owner in your, in your city. And for us, we look for density. So we want people that ideally live in apartments rather than houses with big yards, because that, that dog is probably going to need daycare more than you know, a dog that has a massive fenced yard that their parents can just let them out to run around in the back. And we look for, you know, middle to upper middle class where they have some discretionary income or discretionary spending power. Yeah. Well, and you've got the best oh, of both worlds because you've got expensive project-based income in, in the boarding. And then you've got, you know, recurring revenue in, in the daycare. What, what's the, what's, when you're thinking about structuring a doggy daycare, what's the model? Are you thinking daycare ver- is more important than boarding or is some mix of the two? Yeah. you Usually the model depends on how urban or, or r- suburban or rural the, the facility is. So urban tends to skew much higher daycare. So call it 60 to 75% daycare revenue on an urban location, whereas something that's more suburban is generally 50-50. And then you see kind of a legacy kennel, which you know I'm sure they're outside Dallas, 30 minutes outside the city. Big outdoor space, lots yep. of kennels. You know, they'll they'll be like seventy five percent boarding, and you also see boarding and daycare are the big revenue streams. And then you have grooming and training, and then some retail. Grooming and training are a little more challenging because it's skilled labor. But you can see businesses that have really good grooming components that'll make up you know ten to twenty percent of revenue. And same same with training. Wow. And, and the project the- based revenue is high quality because you know for me at least I've got two dogs. 
And for a long time, I mean, we, we would go to Hawaii for 10 days and then come back and the, the boarding would be almost as expensive as the, the yeah. you know, Hyatt Regency in Maui. But, but we weren't willing to compromise because, you know, we've had a good experience and obviously worrying about the, the safety and the security of your pet, similar to the, the child analysis, like you said. So it's a, it's a great business. Yeah, the, the daycare for us is uh, we run a membership model, which is pretty unique. So it's all of our daycares, monthly recurring Guys, revenue. I have another box of pizza coming. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask if you're more recurring versus reoccurring, you know, e- even on a pay on demand system, I imagine it's pretty steady reoccurring revenue, but you know, we're, drove, we're recurring. So, right. so, I, so that's why I was going to ask what yeah. drove your calculus to recurring at, as opposed to kind of the, the pay on demand model. We stumbled into it when we actually bought pause and rec, they were running a recurring revenue model. And, okay. and this story's fun. I'll share the whole thing. But so the guy who started pause and rec, it was a husband and wife, and he was also a tech guy and okay. he had exited a software business and him and his wife love dogs. And they kind of set this up on the side as, as kind of a side project. So he very much built it kind of like I would have like a recurring sure. revenue model, membership based kind of add on services, et cetera, great branding. And when we, when we took it over, my partner was used to the standard daycare model, which is you buy packages, which is that reoccurring, you know, buy, buy 10, 10 days, days at a time, punch pass, you use them. And we decided, Hey, let's try the recurring thing and see how it goes. And, and, we kind of fell in love with both the, the revenue model, but also it allows us to much better predict capacity in our facilities. So we kind of have a better understanding of how many dogs per day are going to be there because we know what our available pool of dogs is, how many days they're buying every month, and then we can staff better. So we ultimately have a better service for the customer. And then it allows us to just make it easier on the customer where they don't have to think about what they're purchasing. They know how many days they get. So ultimately it's, it's led a kind of better operational experience, better better financial experience for us and, and a better customer experience. So we, we've stayed with it. But but kind of to close the loop on that story, the the guy we bought the business from, he ended up selling it primarily because he knew it had legs and he wasn't going to continue growing it. And he yeah. was also working on a new tech startup that the venture capital firm I was working with ended up investing in his startup after we oh, bought his funny. business. So okay. that was kind of a very cool, like full circle experience with him. Was it, was that, coincidence or was there some facilitation? I, re- like, I reconnected hey, him. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then yeah. they ended up doing the deal. He, oh, yeah, he knew of them already and had kind of talked to him, but I went back to them and was like, Hey, listen, like I really have enjoyed the process with the seller. He's been yeah. a great guy. I really Sharp think guy. you guys should look at his, his, his business again. And, and they ended up investing in it. Interesting. Interesting. Before we pivot off from that, I, I'm just, I'm curious, you know, how much analytics you kind of put into what, you know, what the financial return difference would be between your recurring model or, or flipping back to like the more traditional model to the extent you're, you're open to sharing. Do, do you find the use based on the recurring, like it's, it's more financially lucrative or kind of where's that, where's that break even where, you know, some people are using it a ton where others use it three times a month. And, and you know, so the margin's much higher. Did you guys do a lot? Yeah, of I think the the pros and cons that we've kind of discovered just from a financial perspective is when you sell packages, you don't have a, you theoretically have no cap, right? So you can say, right. I can sell packages to, you know, 3000 people and I can sell as many as I want every single day and I'll just manage capacity based on, yep. you know, they make reservations, they use them, et cetera. 
but when they buy them is very unpredictable. So you could sell a ton in June and then not sell any in July. So what we've decided to do is, you know what, we're going to, we're going to set this on a recurring basis and we're going to cap the available pool because we know how many dogs that's going to bring into the facility. So we can't, our facilities get to a point where like our monthly recurring revenue is capped on the daycare side because we can't fit any more members. Whereas if we were selling punch passes, we could, we could keep selling and then but it would result in a, a less optimal customer experience because if, if that many people are buying yeah. punch passes, they're trying to use them, et cetera. Could be a mess. Yeah, it could turn yeah. out to be yeah. a mess. So, yeah. so you took the you took the trade-off for the customer experience and the and the kind of steady, yeah. steady revenue so that and so then I assume your focus pivots to your other revenue streams in order to Increase yeah, for for us, it was other trend. revenue streams, and then it was additional facilities. Was was I, I, that was kind of an aha for me in the business is coming from software. It's like if growth growth is usually your problem, capacity yeah. is not. You just fire up another server or hire another engineer, and and you can usually manage that capacity. But you're trying to get growth. Uh, for us, it was like we had the growth, and we didn't have the capacity, so we were to in this position more, yeah. where we went and did more facilities because we 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 felt like we had a lot more. We had more growth than we could cater to with our first location. So, so Taylor, so tell us about the life cycle though, right? So you buy Paul's and Rex in 2020 and then you made subsequent acquisitions and before exiting a few years later, walk us through the entire journey from first acquisition to, to ultimate exit. Yeah. So the, the first acquisition we did really, the, the idea was I was going to work on this part-time. My partner was going to be the full-time operator and you know, at the, when we bought the business, it was kicking off like 120 K in, in, in SE. Right. So it was, it was enough to kind of pay us something between the two of us to, to work on it. And I was going to, I stayed consulting for a venture firm for the first year and he was kind of in there working the facility, figuring out how to re-optimize it. And so we had wow. redone all the systems, all the marketing, you know, he figured out, and we kind of knew this going in that we could fit a lot more dogs into that facility than the prior owners had. So it just sort of blew out the expectations, I think, that we had for it very quickly. So we said, let's let's try to acquire another one. And we found another off-market deal that, that was probably like the best target we could have found for us ever at that stage. And and one of our investors had, had taken his dog there for years and just called the guy up and he was older and said, hey, we bought this facility. We want to buy another one. Are you interested? And and similar story. I think we started talking to him in early August and, and we closed on that place in, in early October. Probably a little bit more diligence than we did on the first one, but not much. It was a bigger deal, bigger facility and had more upside. And and at that point, I came on full time and said, hey, the, the venture firm was trying to get me on full time. This was taken off. And I sort of had this decision of like, hey, do I want to go into venture capital full time or do I want to be a small business owner? And I, I chose small business ownership and yeah, so I came on full time and, and kind of built out a strategy of like, Hey, how do we do, you know, more acquisitions? We also said, let's do a de novo so we can understand the comp against what these acquisitions look like from a financial standpoint. So we started, signed a lease for de novo in early 22 that we started working on the build out of that and then ran a pretty heavy search across Florida to try to do another acquisition. And, and we were unable to find another target until the summer of 23, where we closed on our third acquisition, which, which you guys helped us with. And at that point, we had started talking to Pet Resort Hospitality Group, which, which ultimately is our, now our, our holding company, parent company that we've partnered with. And we just got the fourth one open and, and we closed our transaction with, with Pet Resort Hospitality Group in October. So 
October's the month for us. We've done two acquisitions yeah. and, and an exit in October. <laughs> well, fantastic. it's 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 easy to make sense of the life cycle here. We're talking October 2020 to October 2023 from inception. And I guess really I, you probably would back up to August when you had that first contact and started kind of negotiating the first deal as really being, I guess, the inception point. And maybe even before that, I don't know. But it, it, and, and then when did uh, Pet Resort Hospitality Group make the first contact with you guys in 2023 we met one of the co-founders of prhg pet resort hospitality group in probably like six months after we started the business and he was working wow. for another large consolidator and we knew them they were kind of the biggest brand in the space and we had just done our first deal and he was at a trade show and we walked right up to his booth and we said we just bought a doggy daycare and we're coming for you and <laughs> he thought that was great. And he stayed in touch and he eventually left that group and, and started PRHG. And right after they started it, kind of in early 2023, he reached out and said, Hey, you know, we've started this new organization. We're interested in partnering with, with younger guys that want to keep growing, want to keep doing what they're doing. And, and we, we had kind of had 22 really was a year for us of searching. And we had really seen how limited we were with our ambition, our capital partners, just in terms of, hey, we, we can do a lot more than we're doing, but we need to buy facilities in Georgia and Miami and Jacksonville. And our existing investors were, were not keen on kind of that, that expansion yet until we had a little, little more consolidation in Tampa. So we were kind of getting to the point where like, hey, we need to either go raise outside capital or we need to partner with a private equity firm if, if we want to really capitalize, I think, on our talent and our, our, our capability. So we were open to it. We, we'd actually been chatting with another PE group when, when they PRHG contacted us. So we, we really kind of started the conversation with them kind of in February, March of, of 23, and then ultimately closed with them in October. So, so Taylor, so just to summarize here, you started searching in August of 2020. You closed on your first acquisition in October of 2020. A few short months thereafter, you met a big private equity player in the space who ultimately became your acquirer. You acquired three shops in total, started two others de novo, and then you exited in October of 2023, a three-year life cycle, you know, give or take a few months, doing something pretty extraordinary, creating a lot of value and a lot of wealth for you guys. What do you attribute that to? Is this doable in any industry or did you catch lightning in a bottle? What were what was the magic behind being able to, to do that? Yeah, I wish I had a definitive answer because I would go do it again and you know yeah. sell the book on how to do it to anybody. But yeah. I think it was a lot of things. I don't think there's any one succinct answer. I think, you know, I think my partner and I are are uh, very well suited for one another. My partner's name is Mike. He's he's one of my favorite humans in the world. He's unbelievable with dogs and with the staff that we we manage. So I think he was really well positioned to grow a, a fast growing dog daycare brand as an operator. And then I think my background in 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 growing technology companies kind of brought the missing piece to him. So we just complemented each other very well. I think I can't imagine having we we couldn't have done what we did alone. I think we can we pause an for a second and drill a little deeper on what it's no, like to no, have Kevin, a business no. partner that you please enjoy continue, just, Taylor. Ignore I'm just, Kevin. Please. I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, so it's it's you know, and I think we could die, we could spend a lot of time talking about partnership, but that's been that's been probably the biggest factor. Yeah. But I think we caught an industry with a lot of a lot of tailwinds, right? Like all the COVID puppies, doggy daycare is growing. Eric, as you mentioned earlier. You're getting a lot of calls about dog daycare. So I think we caught the right industry at the right time that we were well positioned for. 
I think we were in the right market. I think Tampa's been growing. There's more and more attention coming to Tampa. So I think that helped, but it wasn't so saturated with with dog daycares or buyers of dog daycare that, that we were competing that heavily. And I think we did a lot of stuff right. Like I think, you know, we paced it well. I think we were efficient with our capital. I think we built a good brand. I, I, I think that we just kind of checked a lot of the boxes that you hope to check as as a searcher or an entrepreneur. Um, uh, we found a great partner at, that that you know came at us at the right time. So if you're keeping track at home, you said great partnership, great industry. So the industry happened to be very hot. Uh, you were efficient with capital. You built a good brand, and then you found the right ultimate exit partner at the right time. Yeah, I think I'll I'll add to that too. Like we we weren't afraid to buy small. Like that wasn't a consideration for us. It was we weren't searching yeah. for a business to buy. Like we wanted to be in the dog daycare space. And the first one we bought was small. I mean, it was sub a million in revenue when we bought it. And we just rolled up our sleeves and we're like, how do we make this better? And then how do we keep doing that? So I think it was a the added layer of this is is we did a lot of work in the trenches to improve the businesses we were buying. So I think that value was not really us consolidating. It was like us using these acquisitions as a platform to, to really build a better business. You know, it's a story we hear from time to time, you know, guys like Mike Bakken at the Benchmark Group who did something similar recently. He bought very small. His stories you know, been well told on other podcasts. We haven't had him on here, but local guy in town. And, you know, he bought a very small business the first time and then ultimately acquired many. And he knew the business so well as a buyer that he would say, and, you know, I'll, hopefully someday he'll come on and tell his own story, but walk into a, he'd walk into a potential target. He'd ask three questions. He'd be there for, you know, a half an hour and he'd know how to fix the business, the value of it, and whether or not he wanted to buy it. Is that, is that how you felt, Taylor, when you bought a small business? And obviously it was your partner who was in there day to day at first, but you know, you guys bought small enough that you had to run it, meaning you had to get familiar with it. You had to learn the ins and outs. Did you feel like by the end of that three-year life cycle that you knew the pet care, the pet hospitality business as well as anybody at that level? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're actively working to continue to do more acquisitions with PRHG. And I, I see a facility. I don't even need to go there. Like, send me a video. That's the first request we often have. Just send me a video walkthrough of your facility. Tell me the square footage. And I can tell you what we can do with that footprint. And then you look at what they do and we figure out if, if we can buy it for a multiple that's fair and, and, and do better with it under our purview. So talk for a second before we continue through the exit story, like talk for a second about how you approach running, building out, kind of improving these businesses from a business cost standpoint in an industry where there's so much kind of emotion and things tied to pets and stuff like that. And, and being a little inartful with my question, but where I'm headed is this, this feels like an industry where it would be easy to overspend on CapEx to build out really great features, hospitality features and things like that to take care of pets, to attract customers, but that ultimately cut into the bottom line, vice versa. There would be easily things you could find to cut corners on to improve costs but that would hurt your business because no one wants to drop their pet off to a square concrete box. Right. How do you, how do you, am I overthinking that first of all? And, no, and it's secondly, a great question. if not, how do you think about that and kind of balancing the need for some real CapEx and developing these facilities while maintaining profitability and improving profitability? Yeah, I think the, 
the biggest aha for me in the business, I had this sort of grand vision of creating like a cultish brand, right? Where, mm -hmm. where like a CrossFit style brand where people are obsessed with it. They make friends going to okay. it. And I very quickly realized that while our customer is the human, we spend five minutes a day with them when they drop their dog off and pick them up. And we spend eight hours a day with their dog who can't talk. So you have this kind of interesting juxtaposition of like the actual customer is the, the paying customer spends five minutes in your lobby and then you spend eight hours with what they're paying for, but there's, there's not a lot of communication there. So what we really lead with to answer your question more directly is safety. So we look at if the facility is safe and we can provide a really high level of care. So the dog is going to have a great time and, and they're going to pull to come in the door when they're, when their parent gets out of the car that's that's where we want to improve. So, for example, when we bought our second location, they had, you know, outdoor space, outdoor play space, fencing, et cetera. And we looked at it and we're like, we need to sink a couple hundred grand into better turf and better fencing. And the parents are never going to see that. But the dogs are never going to get hurt if we do this. So yeah, that's yeah. going to create more happy customers because they're not going to have injured dogs. The dogs are going to smell better. They're going to go home and and and. So that's kind of what we lead with, but like they don't care what color the paint is in the in the back of the house. So we focus on making it clean, safe, efficient, and then we make the lobbies fun and pretty and and yeah. and nice. Yeah. Yes. So and it's such a trust business, right? And much like ours, Kevin. But you know, when I got introduced to yeah. search in around 2017, one of the first sims I ever got was for a dog daycare in Kissimmee, Florida. I was in Dallas working at a big law firm and Look, I had the sim sit down at my desk for a dog daycare in Kissimmee. But the problem that the daycare had was that they had had a dog die in the facility, mm. in the boarding, and it was in the reviews. And so she and she was devastated by it, the seller, clearly. I mean, as anybody would be that has a heart, just stuff happens. And so she was trying to sell it, but she was having a difficult time selling it because the trust was gone with the, with the yeah. client base. So it's a high, it feels, it's a high risk business. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest risk is that you have a dog die or you lose a dog because yeah, you can kill that trust factor in a community right away. And I think like another thing we've done well, my background is kind of marketing communications. So we spend a ton of time really making sure that we're communicating well with our customers. We're being super transparent. And I've seen businesses where they have a, an accident, there's something horrible goes on with the dog and they don't communicate well and they lose all trust and the business flounders. And I've seen other instances where something really tragic happens and they're super proactive about the way they communicate and, and they can survive that. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a super high trust business. And the minute you break that trust, you, you have start to have problems. So Taylor, so life cycle of the business. So you ultimately exit, you find the right partner. You said that was kind of the last ingredient in this kind of successful, you know, maybe happy accident of a roll up here. And then you exit, find the right partner. It sounds like your experience was pretty easy because you just go out to, you got to know them early. They're the biggest buyers in the space. And, you know, they, they got to know you guys because they were probably irritated by you guys going, who are these dudes who are buying these <laughs> daycares that we, you know, that are in our way. But how, do, how would you, after having had that experience and you want to go do it again, how would you advise somebody who wants to find the right you know, exit partner to, to, to run a process like that? Yeah. I mean, I think for us, like we, I don't even, I don't use the word exit. Like we, we haven't exited the business. We're still proactively leading pause and rec. We, mm -hmm. we really partnered with, with a, a private equity firm, private equity back group to continue growing the business. And that was 
really the motivator for us is, is, and I think that's the important thing to, to really think through if, if, if you're talking to talking about selling or partnering with a private equity group is, is what's your why for doing it. And does the, the, the private equity group and what they want align with what you want. And for us, when they, when they approached us, they were like, Hey, you know, are you guys interested in working with us? And we were like, well, we want to keep doing what we're doing. We just want to do it bigger and better with more support, more access to capital. And, and yeah, taking some chips off the table would, would be great as well. But our core motivator was, was really just more support to keep growing the, the business and, and be involved with kind of smarter, wiser people than, than just us. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think if you're going into a potential kind of transaction on the sell side, it's, it's, it's really understanding, like, why are you doing this? And, and does the buyer kind of align with, with what, what you want? Just curious, and in, in part of this idea of partnering with a private equity fund and things like that, what what did you do, or how did you navigate sort of that fear factor that I think a lot of people have? That you know, private equity's coming in; they're really coming in to screw me. They're going to stab me in the back and push me out as quickly as they can. They they are going to try and screw me out of my earnout. You know, all all those things that I think people rightly so, right? There's a huge element of trust factor going into a, a transaction like this. Like what, what was it that ultimately led you to be really comfortable with the group leading PHRG that, that made you happy with the idea of like, yeah, this, this actually is a partnership. Cause I love that that's the way you refer to it, right? This wasn't an exit. This was a, you know, we, we partnered with them for our next phase of growth. And I, I like that mentality, but what, what helped you get there? Yeah, I think the first thing is is you know Trivest, who's the 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 private equity firm, and, and PRHG is the platform. They yeah. you know they worked with us on the deal. Two of the the one of the partners and, and and a VP there flew out to meet us, and we had we took them to Sushi Ninja, which is a divey sushi restaurant where we where we love do it. all our our important dinners. Um, I love that. I love that you got a yeah. little spot. That's cool. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they sat down with us and, and really wanted to get to know us. And, and, you know, they came up from Miami and I mean, these guys manage a you know, $600 million fund and we're this small business in Tampa and they came up to show face and, and spent a lot of time with us and wanted to understand our motivation. And, and we got to kind of know them as humans and, and, and they send a LOI sort of on the first page of the LOI, they make a couple of things really clear. They're like, we've been doing this for 40 years and we don't retrade and we have, you know, a history of working with founder led businesses to help them grow. And, you know, that sounds great, but I diligence the heck out of them as a firm. And I talked to a bunch of their other founders. I talked to some of their advisory board members. And then I did that with the guys at PRHG as well. And just kind of consistently heard that, Hey, if you're going to partner with the PE group, like these are the best guys to do it with, they're going to be true to their word. So, so there was yeah. no part of me that felt like they were trying to like bamboozle us. You know, you're, you're, you're kind of, there's friction when you go through the deal process for sure, but they, they handled that friction really well and they kind of understood what we wanted. They also understood sort of some of our immaturities, right? Like we're, we've yeah. never done this before. And I think they handled that with a lot of grace and, and you know that, that I think continued to build a lot of goodwill up with us. And, and we spent more time with them throughout the transaction to just understand like, do we have the same values? Do we want the same things? And it ultimately came down, like we're negotiating a few final points of the deal, Eric, and you were a part of this where they were like, guys, listen, like, if we fire you after the deal, like we have to go to Florida and manage doggy daycares. Like that's not what we do. We're finance yeah, guys. Yeah. Like it's, it's, there's an element of trust here that you're just going to have to, 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 to get behind. But 
yeah, the, 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 the whole thing, I think, from start to finish was about building that level of trust that has subsequently kind of carried forward. And, and now we're kind of enacting in real time. Yeah, it's, well, I think too, it's, it's probably it's interesting. They're investing in you guys, not in necessarily the businesses, because you know, to my point earlier, they're probably going. We these guys are a little bit of an irritation. They're buying these businesses that we want. Let's just get them on board. Yeah, yeah. I think I think their whole thesis, like a lot of the other consolidators in the pet resort space, have have gone at this of like, hey, let's let's buy a business and then we'll run it. We'll get rid of the owner. They'll retire. Whatever. And our thesis with PRHG is like, we, we want partners and we were one of the first and we want to kind of help them grow their brands in local markets. And let's create a great community of, of, of owner operators that are continuing to run their businesses, want to grow or hungry. And, and we can provide, you know, private equity level support to that growth. And that got us really excited is because we, we kept saying like, Hey, if we exit the business, like what else are we going to do? And we want to keep yeah. doing this, but we just want to do it in a bigger way with other, other smart experienced people. Yeah, it's interesting. I was going to say, I, I, I think it's like an underrated, you know, a lot of people will look into the portfolio, they'll look into the actual fund managers that are running the PE fund, et cetera, but they don't necessarily go back to like other port codes, even outside of the platform. But I remember I, I wrote a post months ago. I don't know if you follow much in, in way of the cannabis industry, but very famously, there's a massively successful company Dutchie, where the investors basically kicked out the founders like overnight it was kind of a a big scandal or whatever well i i know the space pretty well and i just wrote this post of like you got to know who you're getting into bed with and look at their track record because they'll usually leave their cards on the table and if you go back through even unrelated to cannabis and things like that you would see that some of the people on the board and on the cap table and stuff like that have a history of having done exactly this thing with previous businesses and, you know, to the extent you can get access to that information, I think it's such an underrated way to build that trust and rapport is to go back through, look at that history and track record. And then you compound that with like the things you're saying of, you know, you know, when you know that you've got a blinder, there's some information asymmetry and they're not just like massively taking advantage, but they're trying to, you know, walk through those issues with you. It just build build so much trust. I think it's a underrated kind of option when you're evaluating a, a, a potential partner like that. But anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, like I spoke to one of the other portfolio CEOs from Trivest and and he kind of, he told the exact story I wanted to hear with no prompting where it was like, you know, I got into the business we're in because I, I want to build a great business. It's great to our customers that really elevates our employees. And, you know, we had been doing that and like, I've just been able to 10 exit with their help. And it was like, that's what I want to do. And this is a business that's done that with a bunch of other businesses. Like why, why wouldn't I partner with them? Because I, I think you go through like the the transition process of being kind of a independent CEO to to working with a a, a, a private equity firm of like you know you're you're giving up control to to some extent, some, maybe to all extents. And what are you kind of getting for that? And for me, it was a, it was a real like ego killer of a process of of like I don't need to do this by myself. Like I'm I'm probably not you know, the next Steve Jobs of doggy daycare and like, that's okay. But what I ultimately want is to build a, a, a great company. And, and, and I want to do that with other guys that want to build a similar company that share my values. And, and, you know, I think we found that in our partner. And I think if, if, if you can sort of get over your need to be the guy, you might be able to build a bigger business. I'd be, I have this conversation with Kevin every day. Like you got to set your ego aside, Kev. 
That's right. Get out of my <laughs> way. Get out of the way. I'm kidding. Kevin's the one with the ego problem here for the record. I so, naturally. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's interesting though, Taylor, you're a little bit of a, you know, you're not the typical seller cast type, right? And you didn't sell, you kind of partnered, right? But, but it is interesting, you know, you have sat in that seat that most sellers sit in and, and kind of psychologically been there in terms of being approached by potential partners and running that analysis of who are they, what do they want from me? And do I want to take that path or do I want to continue down the path that I'm on? I think it's a really important thing for buyers to try to understand the psychology because sellers of all people, you know, I'm a little skeptical when Kevin talked about, you know, they're going to look at the track record and blah, blah, blah. I think people are oftentimes able to look at track records and tell themselves whatever story they want to tell themselves. True when there's dollar signs attached to it and say, I know they did all this stuff, but I'm different. I'm different. Yeah. Yeah. But I I don't think that's the case with sellers. I think sellers are people, even the 60, 70 year old sellers that most people are buying from that are saying, if you, if you indicate any red flags to me, I'll just keep making money. I'll just keep working. You know, I'll just keep right on the path that I'm on. And I don't need to sell to you. I don't need to sell this business at all. In fact, it's going great. That's why you want to buy it. And so talk, talk about the psychology of being on that side of the table. And, you know, if you're now as a buyer, you go to approach somebody, you've done it yourself multiple times. How do you think about presenting yourself as a, as a, a buyer or a partner? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. And it's funny having gone, tried to understand the psychology as a buyer and then sort of sat on the other side as a, as a, as a, as a seller, you, there's some scenarios where you're just not going to win, right? Like you're not going to find the person at the right time. And, and I, I think ultimately acquisition is a long game and advisors told us that early on, they were like, plant a bunch of seeds and you'll be shocked how many people call you a year from now because circumstances have changed. So we've, we've seen that for ourselves now. Like we have, we had a a woman call us last week who we called a year and a half ago and she's has a family life event and she wants to sell her business now. So I I think understanding that like you got to sort of find the right person at the right time and then you may not be the right person for them. Right. And that doesn't make you a bad person. Like you just, it's understanding sort of what are their priorities? Can you meet those priorities? And if so, sort of how do you build the trust around that as you move forward? Like for us, if 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 PRHD would have come in and been like, listen, we have a we have a playbook. We this is what we're gonna do with your business, but we would have been uninterested. The conversation wouldn't have gone very far. It was like they wanted to partner with young founders that wanted to keep growing their businesses and their brands. Now they'll we'll partner with businesses that want to retire. Like if you have a big pet resort and you're 70 years old and you want to retire, like we can we can make that work with PRHD as well. So we're sort of willing to work with both of those. And yeah, I, I think it's just understanding, like, can you accommodate what the seller actually wants as a buyer? So Taylor, one of the, th- the themes throughout this conversation has been the importance of a good partner. You've mentioned yours many times. I'm a huge believer. I, I don't tell them this, but I think I have great partners. And I think one of the happy accidents in our partnership was we all happened to be very different, but very complimentary people. We did a, and I always forget the name of it. We did a, finish that sentence, Kevin. We did a culture index when we first started, which is amazing, by the way. I shouldn't forget the name because it's really terrific. I think everybody should do a culture index. And by the end of it, we were all like, wow, like I need a cigarette. You just told me everything about me. And, And then looking at the personality types, very complimentary and has worked out extremely well, I think thus far, at least um, for us. 
tell us about your partnership. You know, did you know that you and Mike would be complimentary going into it? And how did things kind of play out? Yeah, I mean, I think Mike and I are really lucky where, you know, we were roommates for, I think, two years before we even thought about buying a business. So we had this, you know, living arrangement where we spent a ton of time together. We 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 sort of understood that and he was probably the best roommate I ever had. And I think I was hopefully the best roommate he ever had. We just got along really, really well. And, and you know, we, we, we got sober together. So we sort of had this shared value system around how we approached life that we learned in, in recovery that we really have tried to apply to our business where, you know, we believe people can change. We, we believe in trying to kind of work and live with, with the degree of integrity and doing what we say we're going to do and, and, and being honest and, and overly communicative. So, so we had sort of this, this foundational kind of friendship relationship. And then we had these very complementary skill sets with him as the operator and me as kind of the business person. And, you know, we very quickly fell into like, he knows what he knows how to do. I know what I know how to do. And when we have questions, we'll kind of meet in the middle, but we don't, we don't micromanage each other at all. We really let each other kind of manage the separate, separate sides of the business. And, you know, we often say if it happens inside the facility, it's on Mike. If it happens outside the facility, it's, it's on me. And, you know, that trust kind of grew and grew, I think over the years of us working together and to the point where like, we'll often run into an issue that we run by the other person. And we're really just looking for consent rather than like an actual dialogue because we're so on that same page. But for me, like one, I couldn't have done this without him. Like I wasn't going to manage a dog daycare day to day. Yeah. I think he could have probably done one or two facilities without me, but I think the way that we pushed our growth was, was really kind of with, with my experience. So it, 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 we were able to do something really unique because of, of each other. So I look at a lot of these solo searchers that, you know, are either business people or maybe they're operators. And I just can't imagine running a business as a, as a, as a solo founder. I, I think yeah. there's one, there's so much emotional weight and stress to, to, to being an entrepreneur, to just have somebody like in the trenches with you that's equally vested is, is so important. And two, there's just a lot to do. So having somebody else that's like equally on the hook to help you do it is, is, is awesome. A hundred percent. Yeah, I think in our business, and Kevin, tell me if you see it differently, but like there'll be days where, you know, one of us is down and other people are up and then vice versa. And it's nice because entrepreneurship is it's life on hard mode. And so having people to kind of offset a little bit of the workload and but partnerships can go badly. Also, looking at it in hindsight, if you were to tell a searcher you should do a partnered search, how would you advise them to find the right partner? I think you just got to spend a lot of time with people, right? Is I, I think it's 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 really hard to know who people are just when you're having kind of business calls and conversations. You know, Mike and I were roommates, so it was like we saw each other in our underwear and you know before bed and in the morning waking up, and it's you know like that degree of intimacy. That's gonna be the, right? little, that's gonna be the little clip at the beginning yeah. of the show just to get people. <laughs> that's to, our, that's I'm our gonna promo hang clip. Hang on to minute fifty eight because I want to hear about this underwear thing. <laughs> But no, I, I think I think sort of building that degree of trust takes time and it's mm-hmm. it's hard to force. It was, you know, I've had a lot of instances where I didn't partner with someone and my first few interactions with them were like, this person's great. They they would be awesome to partner with. I'd love to work with them. And then sort of the more you work together and the more you interact, the the more kind of you recognize that maybe that 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 personalities are conflicting or your values are different. So I think it's like approach partnership slowly and diligently and, 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 and before you just kind of jump into it, because it takes a while to really know who somebody is. Well, I'd be curious your thoughts on that too, Eric, because like we had a longstanding relationship, not, not nearly as close as Taylor. And his I've, I've never seen you in your underwear for the record. True, true story. 
Yet, Kevin. Yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. SM Bash coming up. That's, that's right. party boys. <laughs> that's it. Let's go. But but the flip side of that, like, you know, I kind of laugh haphazardly in retrospect of like, we launched this firm never having met Sam in person. Right. So we kind of had both sides in, in kind of our original yeah. founding partnership with the three of us where you and I have known each other for seven years at that point or whatever. We literally met Sam on Twitter and, you know, over some conversations brought, you know, that, that evolved from how, you know, how can we have a referral relationship to, we should partner this guy. So I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm curious putting the shoe on your foot, how, how you would answer. Well, there's lots of ways to know who somebody is and Sam to talk about Sam Rosati for a second, Taylor, somebody, you know, extremely well, uh, he's a fantastic person. His reputation precedes himself. He's a, consummate team player we saw that in kind of the building phase of this he's got high integrity he's he's just a good person and there's nobody i think there's nobody maybe he talked to his brother i guess that would say otherwise you know and in at least and candidly you know i've never run a background check on sam i've never gone out there and asked people about sam you know but and so maybe it was intuition i, I don't know but i would certainly advise yeah, somebody because if a partnership goes badly, you know, you've got from a legal perspective, having been a legal counselor, we've seen many partnerships go badly, you know, even of people that knew each other very well in even all the diligence in the world, having been roommates, see each other in your underpants, whatever, there still can be things that circumstances that come up. Business doesn't perform well. You see a different side of a person that maybe they've never even seen of themselves. And so there's got to be mechanisms to get out also. Right. And so having high quality agreements, having conversations with, you know, the ability to expel a partner, Kevin, wink, wink, hearkening back to, we're not expelling anybody for the record, but we just went through our partnership agreement and, you know, there are some provisions to expel people, you know, and if you need to do that, you know, you want to be able to have a mechanism because if not, your whole life will be held hostage by a bad partnership, your whole life. It's the way you make money. yeah, I think I think we we had these conversations right in the beginning, and I think that just makes the partnership stronger. It's like it's like a prenup for a marriage. It's like uh, yeah, know, some people think say. a prenup is a horrible thing, and some people think it's super romantic. And for us, it was like, yeah, let's let's talk through the worst case scenarios and understand like how we would approach that now when everything's you know kumbaya and, and agree to that. And I think that 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 process can can really kind of strengthen the partnership but also put you in a position to where, yeah, if something does happen, there, there are mechanisms to, to unwind it. I think it takes the pressure off. You know, if you've got a, yeah. a means to end a relationship in a constructive and productive and predictable way, you know, I think any business or personal breakup, the biggest stressor is the uncertainty, right? And yeah. the negotiation and the adversarial nature of it, and you take a lot of that out of the equation because the big decisions have already been made up front. That's a, that's a that's a good thing. So I would say pick somebody that you've diligence that has a reputation that you've got a track record with and then make sure you've got the end in mind because there will yeah. be an end at some point. Yeah, and I think the other thing I'd, I'd throw in there is like understanding and kind of consistently checking in on like making sure you want the same things for the business. So that was a yeah. big process for us where it was like, hey, we started out. It's like, let's do one. Let's see how it goes. Okay, we did one. Let's do another one. Let's see how it goes. Okay, we did two. Like, do we want to go real hard at this for five years? Yeah, let's do that. 
do we do we want to partner with these PE guys and go real hard at this with them for five years? Maybe. Yeah. Hell yeah. Let's do that. So it's it's this constant kind of like rechecking where at any point one of us could have been like, you know what, dude, like I don't want to work that hard. Like we have a good business. We can just cash flow this thing. Let's relax. And the other could have been sort of like, let's go, 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 go. But we were kind of constantly evolving that together. And I think that's allowed us to kind of get to where we are together rather than, you know, going our separate ways because we wanted different things. I, well, I think alignment of vision is really important. Alignment of motivation is really important as well, or knowing what's driving the person. One of the first questions I asked you, Kevin, if you recall, is like, what are we doing? Like, why, you know, what do you want to do? And like the, one of the first things he brought up, like in the first breath was like, I got a kid that's about to go to college. I got, you know, all this stuff. It was like family, 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 family. Right. And so I was sitting there going, okay, here's a person that I'm going to partner with that two or three years in isn't going to go, okay, I'm good with mediocre. I'm good with just, you know, whatever fly by night or where we're failing and it's okay. Cause I don't care. Cause I've got, you know, low overhead. It doesn't matter. And you know, sorry about your life, Eric, or I just give up. So making sure that they've got the same ethos from a motivation perspective. And Kevin, there's been highs and lows in our business. And I don't think there's been a single time where I've ever gone to you and been like, hey, you need to do blah, 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 blah. Because I know that you know just as well as I do that we have to succeed. And so there's nothing I need to say. And that that's a that's a that's the healthy relationship that's you want to have. That's a solid partnership. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Taylor, let's let's wrap up here. You know, from one partnership to another, you know, having having moved with PHRG now. So what's next? Any, anything else? I know you're still kind of full time with Pause and Rec for the foreseeable future, but any anything else you're working on that you want to chat about or or plug as we wrap up this episode? No, I mean it's it's kind of full steam ahead with Pause and Rec and PRHG. We're 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 really actively kind of helping them build out the platform, and and they're helping us figure out how we keep growing the brand here in Florida and. We're super excited about that. That's that's going to be the primary focus for the next couple of years. But you know, I'm also really excited about search and ETA, and I got a few things percolating over there, and I'm starting to look at investing in in some some search deals. So definitely want to kind of stay really involved in in the search yeah. community. I just I've fallen in love with kind of entrepreneurship through acquisition. I spend a lot of time trying to build stuff from zero to one, and I yeah. love the opportunity in, in SMB right now, and and I love what you guys are doing, and you know. Kudos to you guys too. I think our experience working with with SMB Law was really fantastic, and I think you guys are, are are an awesome service provider for the community. And you know, I hope to be more involved in in that community in a bigger way, kind of moving forward as as uh, Pause and Rec evolves too. Yeah, love that. And uh, yeah, if you're ever looking to that. invest in a startup law firm, just you know, asking for a friend. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. send me the sim. <laughs> <laughs> It's going to be a picture of this, these boxes of pizza I'm about to open. Yeah. Here, so. <laughs> as long as it's not Domino's. The minute I see Domino's, I'm out. John of Bleecker Street. That's that's one of the best, right? I mean, that's... Sounds fancy. I don't know if I know it, but wonderful. it sounds good. Isn't that, Kevin, that's where the event was a Correct. few months ago, right? Correct. Yeah. We yeah, had an back, event there. Uh, I threw an event that I didn't attend. John okay. of Bleecker Street, so... Full circle. Yeah, Eric. Eric Love had that. some travel snafu and, and didn't make it. We were in town. It's supposed to be in town for 24 hours, and put together a pretty well attended like i think at the height of it 40 people or something nice. we just kind of took over their outside patio 40 nice. whole people look at yeah, that the, the manager came out at some point and was like who's in charge here and pulls me aside he's like so what should we be expecting to have more people come yes. you're like we got like somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 maybe 40 people coming here we don't have to draw <laughs> Twitter, a little maybe. bit of a crowd we step aside pies. taylor swift we are uh the pizza guys. well taylor thank 
Thanks for joining us. Fantastic to chat with you. Really love the story and look forward to collaborating on more in the ETA space in the future. That's great. Likewise. Thank you guys for having me and thanks for all the help on our deals we've done together. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mundane Millionaires. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, make sure to follow Mundane Millionaires wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you next time.